Everybody dies, don't they? Everybody come back, don't they? Isn't that so? You tried to get into the locked room today, didn't you? How do the dead come back, Mother? What's the secret? Sanatorium under the sign of the hourglass. The journey was long. The train, which ran only once a week on that forgotten branch line, carried no more than a few passengers. Never before had I seen such archaic coaches, withdrawn from other lines long before. They were spacious as living rooms, dark and with many recesses. Corridors crossed the empty compartments at various angles, labyrinthine and cold. They exuded an air of strange and frightening neglect. I moved from coach to coach looking for a comfortable corner. Drafts were everywhere, cold currents of air shooting through the interiors, piercing the whole train from end to end. Here and there, a few people sat on the floor, surrounded by their bundles, not daring to occupy the empty seats. Besides, those high convex oilcloth-covered seats were cold as ice and sticky with age. At the deserted stations, no passengers boarded the train. Without a whistle, without a groan, the train would slowly start again as if lost in meditation. For a time, I had the company of a man in a ragged railwoman's uniform, silent, engrossed in his thoughts. He pressed a handkerchief to his swollen, aching face. Later, even he disappeared, having slipped out unobserved at some stop. He left behind him the mark of his body in the straw that lay on the floor and a shabby black suitcase he had forgotten. Wading in straw and rubbish, I walked shakily from coach to coach. The open doors of the compartments were swinging in the draughts. There was not a single passenger left on the train. At last, I met a conductor in the black uniform of that line. He was wrapping a thick scarf around his neck and collecting his things, a lantern, an official logbook. We're nearly there, sir, he said, looking at me with washed-out eyes. The train was coming slowly to a halt, without puffing, without rattling, as if together with the last breath of steam, life was slowly escaping from it. We stopped. Everything was empty and still, with no station buildings in sight. The conductor showed me the direction of the sanatorium. Carrying my suitcase... I started walking along a white, narrow road toward the dark trees of a park. With some curiosity, I looked at the landscape. The road, along which I was walking, led up to the brow of a gentle hill, from which a wide expanse of country could be seen. That day was uniformly grey, extinguished, without contrasts. And perhaps under the influence of that heavy and colourless aura, the great basin of the valley in which a vast wooded landscape was arranged like theatrical scenery seemed very dark. The rows of trees, one behind the other, ever greyer and more distant, descended the gentle slopes to the left and right. The whole landscape, sombre and grave, seemed almost imperceptibly to float, to shift slightly like a sky full of billowing, stealthily moving clouds. The fluid strips and bands of forest seemed to rustle and grow with rustling like a tide that swells gradually toward the shore. The rising white road wound itself dramatically through the darkness of that woody terrain. I broke a twig from a roadside tree, 
The leaves were dark, almost black. It was a strangely charged blackness, deep and benevolent, like restful sleep. All the different shades of grey in the landscape derived from that one colour. It was the colour of a cloudy summer dusk in our part of the country, when the landscape has become saturated with water after a long period of rain and exudes a feeling of self-denial, a resigned and ultimate numbness that does not need the consolation of colour. It was completely dark among the trees of the parkland, I groped my way blindly on a carpet of soft needles. When the trees thinned, the planks of a footbridge resounded under my feet. Beyond it, against the blackness of the trees, loomed the grey walls of the many-windowed hotel that advertised itself as the sanatorium. The double-glass door of the entrance stood open. The little footbridge with shaky handrails made of birch branches led straight up to it. In the hallway... There was semi-darkness and a solemn silence. I moved on tiptoe from door to door, trying to see the numbers on them. Rounding a corner, I at last met a chambermaid. She had run out of a room, as if having torn herself from someone's importuning arms and was breathless and excited. She could hardly understand what I was saying. I had to repeat it. She was fidgeting helplessly. Had my telegram reached them? She spread her arms, her eyes moved sideways. She was only awaiting an opportunity to leap back behind that half-open door at which she kept squinting. I've come a long way. I booked a room here, by telegram, I said with some impatience. Whom shall I see about it? She did not know. Perhaps you could wait in a restaurant, she babbled. Everybody's asleep just now. When the doctor gets up, I shall announce you. There is sleep. But it's daytime, not night. Here, everybody's asleep all the time. And didn't you know, she said, looking at me with interest now. Besides, it's never night here, she added coyly. She had obviously given up the idea of escape, for she was now picking fussily at the lace of her apron. I left her there and entered the half-lighted restaurant. There were some tables and a large buffet ran the length of one wall, I was now feeling a little hungry and was pleased to see some pastries and a cake on the buffet. I placed my suitcase on one of the tables. They were all unoccupied. I clapped my hands. No response. I looked into the next room, which was larger and brighter. That room had a wide window, a lodger overlooking the landscape I already knew, which, framed by the window, seemed like a constant reminder of mourning, suggestive of deep sorrow and resignation. On some of the tables stood the remains of recent meals, uncorked bottles, half-empty glasses. Here and there lay the tips, not yet picked up by the waiters. I returned to the buffet and looked at the pastries and cake. They looked most appetising. I wondered whether I should help myself. I suddenly felt extremely greedy. There was a particular kind of apple flan that made my mouth water. I was about to lift a piece of it with a silver knife when I felt somebody behind me. The chambermaid had entered the room in her soft slippers and was touching my back lightly. The doctor will see you now, she said, looking at her fingernails. She stood facing me and, conscious of the magnetism of her wriggling hips, didn't turn away. She provoked me, increasing and decreasing the distance between our bodies, as having left the restaurant, we passed many numbered doors. 
the passage became ever darker. In almost complete darkness, she brushed against me, fleetingly. Here's the doctor's door, she whispered. Please go in. Dr. Gotard was standing in the middle of the room to receive me. He was a short, broad-shouldered man with a dark beard. We received your telegram yesterday, he said. We sent our carriage to the station, but you must have arrived by another train. Unfortunately, the railway connections are not very good. Are you well? Is my father alive? I asked, staring anxiously into his calm face. Yes, of course, he answered, calmly meeting my questioning eyes. That is, within the limits imposed by the situation. He added, half closing his eyes, you know as well as I that from the point of view of your home, from the perspective of your own country, your father is dead. This uh, cannot be entirely remedied. That death throws a certain shadow on his existence here. But does father himself know it? Does he guess? I asked him in a whisper. He shook his head with deep conviction. Don't worry, he said in a low voice. None of our patients know it, or can guess. The whole secret of the operation, he added, ready to demonstrate its mechanism on his fingers, is that we've put back the clock. Here, we're always late by a certain interval of time of which we cannot define the length. The whole thing is a matter of simple relativity. Here, your father's death, the death that has already struck him in your country, hasn't occurred yet. In that case, I said, my father must be on his deathbed or about to die. You don't understand me, he said in a tone of tolerant impatience. Here, we reactivate time past with all its possibilities. Therefore, also including the possibility of a recovery. He looked at me with a smile, stroking his beard. But now you probably want to see your father. According to your request, we have reserved for you the other bed in your father's room. I'll take you there. When we were out in the dark passage, Dr. Gotard spoke in a whisper. I noticed he was wearing felt slippers like the chambermaid. We allow our patients to sleep long hours to spare their vitality. Besides, there's nothing better to do. At last, we stopped in front of one of the doors and he put a finger to his lips. Enter quietly. Your father's asleep. Settle down to sleep too. That's the best thing for you to do. Goodbye for now. Goodbye, I whispered, my heart beating fast. I pressed the handle, and the door opened like unresisting lips at part in sleep. I went in. The room was almost empty, grey and bare. Under a small window, my father was lying on an ordinary wooden bed, covered by a pile of bedding, fast asleep. His breathing extracted layers of snoring from the depths of his breast. The whole room seemed to be lined with snores from floor to ceiling, and yet new layers were being added all the time. With deep emotion, I looked at Father's thin, emaciated face, now completely engrossed in the activity of snoring, a remote, trance-like face, which, having left its earthly aspect, was confessing its existence somewhere on a distant shore, by solemnly telling its minutes. There was no second bed in the room. Piercingly cold air blew in through the window. The stove had not been lighted. They don't seem to care much for patience here, I thought. 
to expose such a sick man to such draughts. And no one seems to do any cleaning here either. A thick layer of dust covered the floor and the bedside table, on which stood medicine bottles and a cup of cold coffee. Stacks of pastries in the restaurant, yet they give the patients black coffee instead of anything more nourishing. But perhaps this is a detail compared with the benefits of having the clock put back. I slowly undressed and climbed onto Father's bed. He didn't wake up, but his snoring, having probably been pitched too high, fell an octave lower, forsaking its high declamatory tone. It became, as it were, more private, for his own use. I tucked Father in under his eiderdown to protect him as much as possible from the draughts in the room. Soon I fell asleep by his side. 2. The room was in twilight when I woke up. Father was dressed and sitting at the table drinking tea, dunking sugar-coated biscuits in it. He was wearing a black suit of English cloth, which he had made only the previous summer. His tie was rather loose. Seeing that I was awake, he said with a pleasant smile on his pale face, I'm extremely pleased that you've come, Joseph. It was a real surprise. I feel so lonely here. But I suppose one shouldn't complain in my situation. I've been through worse things, and if one were to itemise them all, but never mind. Imagine on my very first day here they served an excellent fillet of beef with mushrooms. It was a hell of a piece of meat, Joseph. I must warn you most emphatically, beware if they should ever serve you fillet of beef. I can still feel the fire in my stomach and the diarrhoea. I could hardly cope with it. But I must tell you a piece of news, he continued. Don't laugh. I've rented premises for a shop here. Yes, I have. And I congratulate myself for having had that bright idea. I've been bored most terribly, I must say. You cannot imagine the boredom. And so I at least have a pleasant occupation. Don't imagine anything grand, nothing of the kind. A much more modest place than our old store. It's a booth compared with the previous one. Back home, I would be ashamed of such a store. But here, where we've had to give up so many of our pretensions, don't you agree, Joseph? He laughed bitterly. And so one manages somehow to live. The wrong word. I was embarrassed by father's confusion when he realised that he'd used it. I see you sleepy, he continued after a while. Go back to sleep, and then you can visit me in the shop if you want. I'm going there now to see how things are. You cannot imagine how difficult it has been to get credit, how mistrustful they are here of old merchants, of merchants with a reputable past. Do you recall the optician's shop in the market square? Well, our shop's right next door to it. There's still no sign over it, but you'll find your way. I'm sure you can't miss it. Are you going out without a coat? I asked anxiously. They've forgotten to pack it. Imagine. I couldn't find it in my trunk, but I don't really need it. The mild climate, that sweet air. Please, take my coat, Father, I insisted. You must. But Father was already putting on his hat. He waved to me and slipped out of the room. I didn't feel sleepy anymore. I felt rested and hungry. With pleasant anticipation, I thought of the buffet. I dressed, wondering how many pastries to sample. I decided to start with the apple flan, but did not forget the sponge cake with orange peel which had caught my eye. I stood in front of the mirror to fix my tie, but the surface was like bottle glass. It secreted my reflection somewhere in its depth, and only an opaque blur was visible. I tried in vain to adjust the distance, approaching the mirror. 
then retreating from it, but no reflection would emerge from the silvery fluid mist. I must ask for another looking-glass, I thought, and left the room. The corridor was completely dark. In one corner, a tiny gas lamp flickered with a bluish flame, intensifying the impression of solemn silence. In that labyrinth of rooms, archways and niches, I had difficulty remembering which door led to the restaurant. I'll go out, I thought with sudden decision. I'll eat in the town. There must be a good cafe somewhere. Beyond the gate, I plunged into the heavy, damp, sweet air of that peculiar climate. The greyness of the aura had become somewhat deeper. Now it seemed to me that I was seeing daylight through morning crepe. I feasted my eyes on the velvety, succulent blackness of the darkest spots, on passages of dull greys and ashen, muted tones, that nocturne of a landscape. Waves of air fluttered softly round my face. They smelled of the sickly sweetness of stale rainwater. And again, that perpetual rustle of black forests, dull chords disturbing space beyond the limits of audibility. I was in the backyard of the sanatorium. I turned to look at the rear of the main building, which was shaped like a horseshoe around a courtyard. All the windows were shuttered in black. The sanatorium was in deep sleep. I went out by a gate and an iron fence. Nearby stood a dog kennel of extraordinary size, empty. Again I was engulfed and embraced by the black trees. Then it became somewhat lighter, and I saw outlines of houses between the trees. A few more steps, and I found myself in a very large town square. What a strange, misleading resemblance it bore to the central square of our native city. How similar, in fact, are all the market squares in the world, almost identical houses and shops. The sidewalks were nearly empty. The mournful semi-darkness of an undefined time descended from a sky of an indeterminable greyness. I could easily read all the shop signs and posters, yet it would not have surprised me to learn that it was the middle of the night. Only some of the shops were open. Others, their iron shutters pulled halfway down, were being hurriedly closed. A heady, rich and inebriating air seemed to obscure some parts of the view, to wash away like a wet sponge some of the houses, a street lamp, a section of signboard. At times it was difficult to keep one's eyes open, overcome as one was by a strange indolence or sleepiness. I began to look for the optician's shop that my father had mentioned. He had spoken of it as something I knew, and he seemed to assume that I was familiar with local conditions. Didn't he remember that I'd just come here for the first time? No doubt his mind was confused. Yet, what could one expect of father who was only half real, who lived a relative and conditional life, circumscribed by so many limitations? I cannot deny that much good will was needed to believe in his kind of existence. What he experienced was a pitiful substitute for life, depending on the indulgence of others on a consensus omnium from which he drew his faint strength. It was clear that only by the solidarity of forbearance, by a communal averting of eyes from the obvious and shocking shortcomings of his condition, could this pitiful semblance of life maintain itself, for however short a moment, within the tissue of reality. The slightest doubt 
could undermine it. The faintest breeze of skepticism destroy it. Could Dr. Gotthard's sanatorium provide for Father this hothouse atmosphere of friendly indulgence and guard him from the cold winds of sober analysis? It was astonishing that in this insecure and questionable state of affairs, Father was capable of behaving so admirably. I was glad when I saw a shop window full of cakes and pastries. My appetite revived. I opened the glass door with the inscription, Ices on it, and entered the dark interior. It smelled of coffee and vanilla. From the depths of the shop a girl appeared, her face misted over by dusk, and took my order. At last, after waiting so long, I could eat my fill of excellent doughnuts which I dipped in my coffee. Surrounded by the dancing arabesques of dusk, I devoured pastries one after another, feeling darkness creep under my eyelids and stealthily fill me with its warm pulsations, its thousand delicate touches. In the end, only the window shone like a grey rectangle in the otherwise complete darkness. I knocked with my spoon on the tabletop, but in vain. No one appeared to take money for my refreshment. I left a silver coin on the table and walked out into the street. In the bookshop next door, the light was still on. The shop assistants were busy sorting books. I asked for my father's shop. It's uh, next door to ours, one of them explained. A helpful boy even went with me to the door to show me the way. Father's shop had a glass pane in the door. The display window was not ready and was covered with a grey paper. On entering, I was astonished to see that the shop was full of customers. My father was standing behind the counter and adding a long row of figures on an invoice, repeatedly licking his pencil. The man for whom the invoice was being prepared was leaning over the counter and moving his index finger down the column of figures, counting softly. The rest of the customers looked on in silence. My father gave me a look from over his spectacles, and, marking his place on the invoice, said, There's a letter for you. It's on the desk among all the papers. He went back to his sums. Meanwhile, the shop assistants were taking pieces of cloth bought by the customers, wrapping them in paper and tying them with string. The shelves were only half filled with cloth. Some of them were still empty. Why don't you sit down, father? I asked softly, going behind the counter. You don't take enough care of yourself although you're very sick. Father lifted his hand as if wanting to reject my pleas and didn't stop counting. He looked very pale. It was obvious that only the excitement of his feverish activity sustained him and postponed the moment of complete collapse. I went up to the desk and found not a letter, but a parcel. A few days earlier, I'd written to a bookshop about a pornographic book. And here it was already. They had found my address, or rather father's address, although he had only just opened a new shop here that had neither name nor a signboard. What amazing efficiency in collecting information. What astounding delivery methods, and what incredible speed. You may read it in the office at the back, said my father, looking at me with displeasure. As you can see, there's no room here. The room behind the shop was still empty. Through a glass door, some light filtered in from the shop. On the walls, the shop assistant's overcoats hung from hooks. I opened the parcel, and by the faint light from the door, read the enclosed letter. 
The letter informed me that the book I had ordered was unfortunately out of stock. They would look out for it, although the result of the search was uncertain. Meanwhile, they were sending me without obligation a certain object which they were sure would interest me. There followed a complicated description of a folding telescope with great refractive power and many other virtues. Interested, I took the instrument out of the wrapping. It was made of black oilcloth or canvas and was folded in the shape of a flattened accordion. I've always had a weakness for telescopes. I began to unfold the plaits of the instrument. Stiffened with thin rods, it rose under my fingers until it almost filled the room, a kind of enormous bellows, a labyrinth of black chambers, a long complex of camera obscuras, one within the other. It looked too like a long-bodied model automobile made of patent leather, a theatrical prop, its lightweight paper and stiff canvas imitating the bulkiness of reality. I looked into the black funnel of the instrument and saw deep inside the vague outline of the back of the sanatorium. Intrigued, I put my head deeper into the rear chamber of the apparatus. I could now see in my field of vision the maid walking along the darkened corridor of the sanatorium carrying a tray. She turned round and smiled. Can she see me? I asked myself. An overwhelming drowsiness misted my eyes. I was sitting, as it were, in the rear chamber of the telescope, as if in the back seat of a limousine. A light touch on a lever, and the apparatus began to rustle like a paper butterfly. I felt that it was moving and turning toward the door. Like a large black caterpillar, the telescope crept into the lighted shop. An enormous paper arthropod with two imitation headlights on the front. The customers clustered together, retreating before this blind paper dragon. The shop assistants flung open the door to the street, and I rode slowly in my paper car amid rows of onlookers who followed with scandalized eyes my truly outrageous exit. 3. That's how one lives in this town, and how time goes by. The greater part of the day spent in sleeping, and not only in bed. No one is very particular when it comes to sleep. At any place, at any time, one is ready for a quiet snooze, with one's head propped on a restaurant table, in a horse-drawn cab, even standing up when out for a walk, one looks into the hall of an apartment house for a moment and succumbs to the irrepressible need for sleep. Waking up still dazed and shaky, one continues the interrupted conversation or the wearisome walk, carries on complicated discussions without beginning or end. In this way, whole chunks of time are casually lost somewhere. Control over the continuity of the day is loosened until it finally ceases to matter, and the framework of uninterrupted chronology that one has been disciplined to notice every day is given up without regret. The compulsive readiness to account for the passage of time, the scrupulous pennywise habit of reporting on the used of hours, the pride and ambition of our economic system are forsaken. Those cardinal virtues, which in the past one never dared to question, have long ago been abandoned. A few examples will illustrate this state of affairs. At a certain time of night or day, 
A hardly perceptible difference in the colour of the sky allows one to tell which it is. I wake up in twilight at the railings of the footbridge leading to the sanatorium. Overpowered by sleep, I must have wandered unconsciously for a long time, all over the town, before, mortally tired, I dragged myself to the bridge. I cannot say whether Dr. Gotthard accompanied me on that walk, but now he stands in front of me, finishing a long tirade and drawing conclusions. Carried away by his own eloquence, he slips his hand under my arm and leads me somewhere. I walk on with him, and even before we've crossed the bridge, I'm asleep again. Through my closed eyelids I can vaguely see the doctor's expressive gestures, the smile under his black beard, and I try to understand, without success, his ultimate point, which he must have triumphantly revealed, for he now stands with arms outstretched. We have been walking side by side for I don't know how long, engrossed in a conversation at cross-purposes, when all of a sudden I wake up completely. Dr. Gotthard has gone. It's quite dark, but only because my eyes are shut. When I open them, I find that I'm in our room and don't know how I got there. An even more dramatic example. At lunchtime, I enter a restaurant in town, which is full and very noisy. Whom do I meet in the middle of it, at a table sagging under the weight of dishes? My father. All eyes are on him, while he, animated almost ecstatic with pleasure, his diamond type in shining, turns in all directions, making fulsome conversation with everybody at once. With false bravado, which I observe with the greatest misgivings, he keeps ordering new dishes, which are then stacked on the table. He gathers them around him with glee, although he has not even finished the first course. Smacking his lips, chewing and speaking at the same time, he mimes his great satisfaction with this feast, and follows with adoring eyes Adam, the waiter, to whom with an ingratiating smile he gives more orders. And when the waiter, waving his napkin, rushes to get them, Father turns to the company and calls them to witness the irresistible charm of Adam, the Ganymede. A boy in a million, Father exclaims with a happy smile, half closing his eyes. A ministering angel, you must agree, gentlemen, that he is a charmer. I leave in disgust, unnoticed by father. Had he been put there by the management of the restaurant in order to amuse the guests, he could not behave in a more ostentatious way. My head heavy with drowsiness, I stumble through the streets towards the sanatorium. On a pillar box, I rest my head and take a short siesta. At last, groping in darkness, I find the gate and go in. Our room is dark. I press the light switch, but there's no current. A cold draught comes from the window. The bed creaks in the darkness. My father lifts his head from the pillows and says, Ah, Joseph, Joseph, I've been lying here for two days without any attention. The bells are out of order. No one's been to see me. And my own son has left me. A very sick man to run after girls in the town. Look how my heart's thumping. How do I reconcile all this? Has father been sitting in the restaurant driven there by an unhealthy greed? Or has he been lying in the bed feeling very ill? Are there two fathers? Nothing of the kind. The problem is the quick decomposition of the time no longer watched with incessant vigilance. We all know that time, this undisciplined element, holds itself within bounds, but precariously. 
thanks to unceasing cultivation, meticulous care, and a continuous regulation and correction of its excesses. Free of this vigilance, it immediately begins to do tricks, run wild, play irresponsible practical jokes, and indulge in crazy clowning. The incongruity of our private times becomes evident. My father's time and mine no longer coincide. Incidentally, the accusation that my father has made is completely groundless. I have not been chasing after girls. Swaying like a drunkard from one bout of sleep to another, I can hardly pay attention, even in my more wakeful moments, to the local ladies. Moreover, the chronic darkness in the streets doesn't allow me to see faces clearly. What I have been able to observe, being a young man who still has a certain amount of interest in such things, is the peculiar way in which these girls walk. Heedless of obstacles, obeying only some inner rhythm, each one walks in an inexorably straight line, as if along a thread that she seems to unwind from an invisible skein. This linear trot is full of mincing accuracy and measured grace. Each girl seems to carry inside her an individual rule wound tight like a spring. Walking thus, straight ahead, with concentration and dignity, they seem to have only one worry, not to break the rule, not to make any mistake, not to stray either to the right or to the left. And then it becomes clear to me that what they so conscientiously carry within themselves is an idée fix of their own excellence, which the strength of their conviction almost transforms into reality. It is risked anticipation without any guarantee, an untouchable dogma held high, impervious to doubt. What imperfections and blemishes, what retroussé or flat noses, what freckles or spots are smuggled under the bold flag of that fiction. There is no ugliness or vulgarity that cannot be lifted up to a fictional heaven of perfection by the flight of such a belief. Sanctified by it, Bodies become distinctly more beautiful, and feet, already shapely and graceful in their spotless footwear, speak eloquently. Their fluid, shiny, pacing monologue explains the greatness of an idea that the closed faces are too proud to express. The girls keep their hands in the pockets of their short, tight jackets. In the cafes and in the theatre, they cross their legs uncovered to the knee and hold them in provocative silence. So much for one of the peculiarities of this town. I have already mentioned the black vegetation of the region. A certain kind of black fern deserves special mention. Enormous bunches of it in vases are in the windows of every apartment here and every public place. The fern is almost the symbol of mourning, the town's funereal crest. Four. Conditions in the sanatorium are becoming daily more insufferable. It has to be admitted that we have fallen into a trap. Since my arrival, when a semblance of hospitable care was displayed for the newcomer, the management of the sanatorium has not taken the trouble to give us even the illusion of any kind of professional supervision. We are simply left to our own devices. Nobody caters to our needs. I have noticed, for instance, that the wires of the electric bells are being cut just behind the doors lead nowhere. There is no service. The corridors are dark and silent by day and by night. I have a strong suspicion 
that we are the only guests in this sanatorium, and that the mysterious or discreet looks with which the chambermaid closes the doors of the rooms on entering or leaving are simply mystification. I sometimes feel a strong desire to open each door wide and leave it ajar, so that the miserable intrigue in which we've gotten ourselves involved can be exposed. And yet, I'm not quite convinced that my suspicions are justified. Sometimes, late at night, I meet Dr. Gotard in a corridor, hurrying somewhere in a white coverall, with an enema bottle in his hand, preceded by the chambermaid. It will be difficult to stop him then and demand an explanation. Were it not for the restaurant and pastry shop in town, one might starve to death. So far, I have not succeeded in getting a second bed for our room. There is no question of the sheets being changed. One has to admit that the general neglect of civilised habits has affected both of us too. To get into bed dressed and with shoes on was once, for me, a civilised person, unthinkable. Yet now, when I return home late, sleep drunk, the room is in semi-darkness and the curtains at the window billow in a cold breeze. Half-dazed, I tumble onto the bed and bury myself in the eiderdown. Thus I sleep for irregular stretches of time, for days or weeks, wandering through empty landscapes of sleep. Always on the way, always on the steep roads of respiration, sometimes sliding lightly and gracefully from gentle slopes, then climbing laboriously up the cliff of snoring. At their summit, I embrace the horizons of the rocky and empty desert of sleep. At some point, somewhere on the sharp turn of a snore, I wake up, half-conscious, and feel the body of my father at the foot of the bed. He lies there, curled up, small as a kitten. I fall asleep again with my mouth open, and the vast panorama of mountain landscape glides past me, majestically. In the shop... My father displays an energetic activity, transacting business and straining all his capacities to attract customers. His cheeks are flushed with animation. His eyes shine. In the sanatorium, he's very sick. As sick as during his last weeks at home. It's obvious that the end must be imminent. In a weak voice, he addresses me. You should look into the store more often, Joseph. The shop assistants are robbing us. You can see that I'm no longer equal to the task. I've been lying here sick for weeks and the shop is being neglected, left to run itself. Was there any mail from home? I begin to regret this whole undertaking. Perhaps we were misled by skillful advertising when we decided to send Father here. Time put back. It sounded good. But what does it come to in reality? Does anyone here get time at its full value, a true time, a time cut off from a fresh bolt of cloth, smelling of newness and dye. Quite the contrary. It's a used-up time, worn out by other people, a shabby time full of holes, like a sieve. No wonder. It is time, as it were, regurgitated, if I may be forgiven this expression, second-hand time. God help us all. And then... There's the matter of the highly improper manipulation of time, the shameful tricks, the penetration of time's mechanism from behind, the hazardous fingering of its wicked secrets. Sometimes one feels like banging the table and exclaiming, enough of this, keep off time, time is untouchable, one must not provoke it. Isn't it enough for you to have space? 
Space is for human beings. You can swing about in space, turn somersaults, fall down, jump from star to star. But for goodness sake, don't tamper with time. On the other hand, can I be expected to give notice to Dr. Gotthard? However miserable father's existence, I am able to see him, to be with him, to talk to him. In fact, I should be infinitely grateful to Dr. Gotthard. Several times I've wanted to speak openly to Dr. Gotthard, but he's elusive. He has just gone to the restaurant, said the chambermaid. I turn to go there when she runs after me to say that she was wrong, that Dr. Gotthard is in the operating theatre. Hurrying upstairs, I wonder what kind of operations can be performed here. I enter the anteroom and I'm told to wait. Dr. Gotthard will be with me in a moment. He has just finished the operation. He is washing his hands. I can almost visualise him, short, taking long steps, his coat open, hurrying through a succession of hospital wards. After a while, what am I told? Dr. Gotthard had not been there at all, and no operation has been performed there for many years. Dr. Gotthard is asleep in his room, his black beard sticking up into the air. The room fills with his snores as if with clouds that lift him in his bed, ever higher and higher, a great pathetic ascension on waves of snores and voluminous bedding. Even stranger things happen here, things that I try to conceal from myself and that are quite fantastic in their absurdity. Whenever I leave our room, I have the impression that someone who has been standing behind the door moves quickly away and turns a corner, or somebody seems to be walking in front of me, not looking back. It's not a nurse. I know who it is. Mother, I exclaim, in a voice trembling with excitement, and my mother turns her face to me and looks at me for a moment with a pleading smile. Where am I? What is happening here? What maze have I become entangled in? Five. I don't know why. It may be the time of year, but the days are growing more severe in colour, darker and blacker. It seems as if one were looking at the world through black glasses. The landscape's now like the bottom of an enormous aquarium full of watery ink. Trees, people and houses merge, swaying like underwater plants against the background of the inky deep. Packs of black dogs, often seen in the vicinity of the sanatorium, of all shapes and sizes, they run at dusk along the roads and paths, engrossed in their own affairs, silent, tense and alert. They run in twos and threes, with outstretched necks, their ears pricked up, whining softly in plaintive tones that escape from their throats, as if against their will, signals of the highest nervousness, absorbed in running, hurrying, always on their way somewhere, always pursuing some mysterious goal, they hardly notice the passers-by. Occasionally, one shoots at a glance while running past, and then... The black and intelligent eyes are full of a rage contained only by haste. At times, the dogs even rush at one's feet, succumbing to their anger with heads held low and ominous snarls, but soon think better of it and turn away. Nothing is to be done about this plague of dogs, but why does the management of the sanatorium keep an enormous alsatian on the chain, a terror of a beast, a werewolf of truly demoniacal ferocity? I shiver with fear whenever I pass his kennel, by which he stands, immobile on his short chain, 
a hail of matted hair bristling around his head, bewhiskered and bearded, his powerful jaws displaying the whole apparatus of his long teeth. He doesn't bark, but his wild face contorts at the sight of a human being. He stiffens with an expression of boundless fury, and slowly raising his horrible muzzle, breaks into a low, fervent, convulsive howl that comes from the very depths of his hatred, a howl of despair and lament at his temporary impotence. My father walks past the beast with indifference whenever we go out together. As for myself, I'm deeply shaken when confronted by the dog's impotent hatred. I am now some two heads taller than father, who, small and thin, trots at my side with the mincing gait of a very old man. Approaching the city square one day, we noticed an extraordinary commotion. Crowds of people filled the streets. We heard the incredible news that the enemy army had entered the town. In consternation, people exchanged alarmist and contradictory news that was hard to credit. A war not preceded by diplomatic activity. A war amid blissful peace. A war against whom? And for what reason? We were told that the enemy incursion gave heart to a group of discontented townspeople who have come out into the open, armed, to terrorise the peaceful inhabitants. We noticed, in fact, a group of these activists in black civilian clothing with white straps across their breasts, advancing in silence, their guns at the ready. The crowd fell back onto the pavements as they marched by, flashing from under their hats ironical dark looks, in which there was a touch of superiority, a glimmer of malicious and perverse enjoyment, as if they could hardly stop themselves from bursting into laughter. Some of them were recognised by the crowd, but the exclamations of relief were at once stilled by the sight of rifle barrels. They passed by, not challenging anybody. All the streets filled at once with a frightened, grimly silent crowd. A dull hubbub floated over the city. We seemed to hear a distant rumble of artillery and the rattle of gun carriages. I must get to the shop, said my father, pale but determined. You needn't come with me, he added. You'll be in my way. Go back to the sanatorium. The pull of cowardice made me obey him. I saw my father trying to squeeze himself through the compact wall of bodies in the crowd and lost sight of him. I broke into a run along side streets and alleys and hurried toward the upper part of the town. I realised that by going uphill I might be able to avoid the centre now packed solid by people. Further up the crowd thinned and at last completely disappeared. I walked quietly along empty streets to the municipal park Street lamps were lighted there and burned with a dark bluish flame, the colour of asphodels, the flowers of morning. Each light was surrounded by a swarm of dancing June bugs, heavy as bullets, carried on their slanting flight by vibrating wings. The fallen were struggling clumsily in the sand, their backs arched, hunched beneath the hard shields under which they were trying to fold the delicate membranes of their wings, on grassy plots and paths, people were walking along, engrossed in carefree conversation. The trees at the far end of the park drooped into the courtyards of the houses that were built on lower ground on the other side of the park wall. I strolled along that wall on the park side where it reached only to my breast. On the other side, it fell in escarpments to the level of courtyards. In one place, a ramp of firm soil rose from the courtyards to the top of the wall, 
there, I crossed the wall without difficulty and squeezed between houses into a street. As I had expected, I found myself almost facing the sanatorium. Its back was outlined clearly in the black frame of trees. As usual, I opened the gate in the iron fence and saw from a distance the watchdog at his post. As usual, I shivered with aversion and wished to pass him by as quickly as possible, so as not to have to listen to his howl of hatred. But I suddenly noticed that he was unchained and was circling toward the courtyard, barking hollowly and trying to cut me off. Rigid with fright, I retreated and instinctively looking for shelter, crept into a small arbour, sure that all my efforts to evade the beast would be in vain. The shaggy animal was leaping toward me, his muzzle already pushing into the arbour. I was trapped. Horror-struck, I then saw that the dog was on a long chain, that he had unwound to its full length, and that the inside of the arbour was beyond the reach of his claws. Sick with fear, I was too weak to feel any relief. Reeling, almost fainting, I raised my eyes. I had never before seen the beast from so near, and only now did I see him clearly. How great is the power of prejudice, how powerful the hold of fear, how blind had I been. It wasn't a dog, it was a man, a chained man, whom by a simplifying metaphoric wholesale error I had taken for a dog. I don't want to be misunderstood, he was a dog certainly, but a dog in human shape. The quality of a dog is an inequality and can be manifested as well in human as in animal shape. He who was standing in front of me in the entrance to the arbour, his jaws wide open, his teeth bared in a terrible growl, was a man of middle height with a black beard. His face was yellow, bony. His eyes were black, evil and unhappy. Judging by his black suit and the shape of his beard, or might take him for an intellectual or scholar, he might have been Dr. Kotar's unsuccessful elder brother, but that first impression was false. The large hands stained with glue, the two brutal and cynical furrows running down from his nostrils and disappearing into his beard, the vulgar horizontal wrinkles on the low forehead quickly dispelled the first impression. It looked more like a bookbinder, a tub thumper, a vocal party member, a violent man given to dark, sudden passions, and it was this, the passionate depth, the convulsive bristling of all his fibres, the mad fury of his barking when the end of a stick was pointed at him, that made him a hundred percent dog. If I tried to escape through the back of the arbour, I thought, I would completely elude his reach, and could walk along a side path to the gate of the sanatorium. I was about to put my leg over the railing when I suddenly stopped. I felt it would be too cruel simply to go away and leave the dog behind, possessed by his helpless and boundless fury. I could imagine his terrible disappointment, his inexpressible pain, as I escaped from his trap, free once and for all from his clutches. I decided to stay. I stepped forward and said quietly, Please calm down. I shall unchain you. His face distorted by spasms of growling, became whole again, smooth and almost human. I went up to him without fear and unfastened the buckle of his collar. We walked side by side. The bookbinder was wearing a decent black suit but had bare feet. I tried to talk to him, 
but a confused babble was all I heard in reply. Only his eyes, black and eloquent, expressed a wild spurt of gratitude, of submission, which filled me with awe. Whenever he stumbled on a stone or a clod of earth, the shock made his face shrivel and contract with fear, and that expression was followed by one of rage. I would then bring him to order with a harsh, comradely rebuke. I even patted him on the back. An astonished, suspicious, unbelieving smile tried to form on his face. Ah, how hard to bear was this terrible friendship. How frightening with this uncanny sympathy. How could I get rid of this man striding along with me, his eyes expressing his total submission following the slightest changes in my face? I could not show him patience. I pulled out my wallet and said in a matter-of-fact tone, you, uh, you probably need some money. I'll lend you some with pleasure. But at the sight of my wallet, his look became so unexpectedly wild that I put it away again as quickly as I could. For quite some time afterward, he couldn't calm himself, and his features continued to be distorted by more spasms of growling. No, I couldn't stand this any longer. Anything but not this. Matters were already confused and entangled enough. I then noticed a glare of fire over the town. My father was somewhere in the thick of a revolution or in a burning shop. Dr. Gotard was unavailable, and to cap it all, my mother had appeared incognito on that mysterious errand. These were the elements of some great and obscure intrigue which was hemming me in. I must escape, I thought, escape at any cost, anywhere. I must drop this horrible friendship with a bookbinder who smells of dog and is watching me all the time. We were now standing in front of the sanatorium. Come to my room, please, I said with a polite gesture. Civilized gestures fascinated him, soothed his wildness. I let him enter my room first and gave him a chair. I'll go to the restaurant and get some brandy, I said. He got up terrified and wanted to follow me. I calmed his fears with gentle firmness. You will sit here and wait for me, I said in a deep, sonorous voice which concealed fear. He sat down again with a tentative smile. I went out and walked slowly along the corridor, then downstairs and across the hall leading to the entrance door. I passed the gate, strode across the courtyard, banged the iron gate shut, and only then began to run breathlessly, my heart thumping, my temples throbbing, along the dark avenue leading to the railway station. Images raced through my head, each more horrible than the next. The impatience of the monster dog, his fear and despair when he realised that I had cheated him, another attack of fury, another bout of rage breaking out with unchecked force. My father's return to the sanatorium, his unsuspecting knock at the door, and his confrontation with the terrible beast. Luckily, in fact, father was no longer alive. He couldn't really be reached, I thought with relief, and saw in front of me the black row of railway carriages ready to depart. I got into one of them, and the train, as if it had been waiting for me, slowly started to move without a whistle. Through the window, the great valley filled with dark, rustling forests against which the walls of the sanatorium seemed white, moved, and turned slowly once again. Farewell, father. Farewell, town, that I shall never see again. Since then, I have travelled continuously, I have made my home in that train, 
and everybody puts up with me as I wander from coach to coach. The compartments, enormous as rooms, are full of rubbish and straw, and cold draughts pierce them on grey, colourless days. My suit became torn and ragged. I have been given the shabby uniform of a railway man. My face is bandaged with a dirty rag because one of my cheeks is swollen. I sit on the straw, dozing, and when hungry, I stand in the corridor outside the second-class compartment and sing. People throw small coins into my hat, a black railwayman's hat, its visor half torn away. Everybody dies, don't they? Everybody come back, don't they? Isn't that so? You tried to get into the locked room today, didn't you? You tried to How do the dead come back, Mother? What's the secret? Sanatorium under the sign of the hourglass by Bruno Schultz. I don't know about you. I remember watching series three of Twin Peaks and kind of liking it and thinking, I have no idea what's going on here. So I have that a little bit from this story. Now, Bruno Schultz is beloved of literary greats of the 20th century. He was a um, Polish Jewish writer, although when he was born, the part of Poland he, uh, and he wrote in Polish, and the part of Poland that he was born in was part of Austria-Hungary, and it is now part of the Ukraine. So it temporarily was part of Poland. After the Second World War, the Polish speakers were shunted west and most of the people who live there now uh, speak Ukrainian. So they probably don't know anything about him. Um, Apparently the town was an industrial town. It was mainly Jewish in his time, although, as we'll see later, that isn't the case now. So his family were relatively well off. They owned a dry goods shop. Now, once upon a time, I think I knew what that was, but I'm not sure what it is now. But it's some kind of grocers, isn't it? But, um, but not, not a green grocers. But a, I'm kind of fumbling a bit here, but you know what I mean. I can just imagine packets of things in brown paper that are dry, therefore dry goods, okay? So, as we said, that there was a lot of change in that part of the world. He was born in 1892, and in those days... And he, I've been reading about him and uh, he talks about the Emperor Franz Joseph of Austria and how he was a fixture. And Galicia had been part of Austria in those times for about 200 years. And that just reminded me, I uh, remember reading the Radetzky March by uh, Joseph Roth, who was also from Galicia. It seems that the Austria-Hungarian Empire in those days produced a wealth of weirdness because we have Kafka, born about 20 or 30 years, um, he was 20 or 30 years older than Bruno Schultz. And we have Gustav Meyrink. Of course, Kafka and Bruno Schultz were Jewish. Gustav Meyrink wasn't, I don't think. Joseph Roth was Jewish as well. And I think also we have to take into account people like Freud, who uh, was Austrian and Jewish, and of course his theories of symbolism and the unconscious kind of sparked off things like Dadaism and Surrealism. So this whole retreat from the real, from the naturalistic, is seen in 
Bruno Schultz's work. Now, Bruno Schultz is considered a pro stylist. Now, I don't read Polish, but some of the translators are pretty good in, in conveying that. This is a very strange story. We could say it's allegorical, but allegories usually relate to something that we understand, and I'm not sure what this does relate to. I enjoyed it nevertheless, but it is fairly ominous without being... You couldn't say it was a horror story, but there is something disturbing in it, and I think this is where horror tales cross over with the weird and... Whereas Lovecraft, who we, who we covered last week, can put some pretty unnerving things in his stories. And of course, some the English writers, uh, particularly M.R. James. But this, the, the Meyrink and Kafka definitely just take you out of the real and intrude these bizarre elements. And again, I am reminded of David Lynch, you know, when I talked about Twin Peaks Season 3. And it's almost as if these writers retreat from any rational planning of their stories. And we are, uh, as writers, we are told about structure and form. But, and, and, and that relates to, and that goes way back to Aristotle and his three-act format, back to Greek times. And Western culture is more or less stuck to that, really. But this is a retreat into the dream world on the Eric, I can't even say, I've never heard anybody say that out loud, but it's, you know, from the Greek meaning dreamlike, and definitely this is. I wondered myself whether it was, I remember last week we talked about the music of Eric Zahn where um, our protagonist goes across the dark river over a bridge and enters this, the Rudol sail, which is set apart. Well, it almost seemed to me that this was conveyed in the same way by the train journey the bizarre train journey, which people don't want to be on. I, I digress to say that, of course, I think this was published in about 1934. And um, so it was a while before the Nazi invasion of Poland. However, I can't help but think it prefigures those appalling train journeys and um, reminds me of Primo Levi's story, if this is a man, of course, Primo Levi was Jewish as well, and, and that story is, is specifically about people being transported to the, the death camps. So the train journey and also the march of the, you know, the enemy, when he talks about the enemy army has, a, has come to the town and they don't really know why. And they talk about these men marching through with their rifles and their helmets. And you can't help but be reminded of the fascists. Now, whether that's a prefiguring, uh, a prophetic vision of what was going to happen in 1939 in Poland, or just looking around him, because I think in the 1930s across Europe, certainly in Britain with the black shirts, the Mosleyites, black shirts, there were uniformed fascist movements. So maybe this isn't a prefiguring, but it's just an observation of what was going on. But anyway, this dreamlike um, train journey to the bizarre sanatorium and some of the details there are, the, you know, some of them, are the symbols, the father, the mother, we can make something of those in Freudian terms. Things like his obsession with pastries, oh, I struggle with that one. The fact that the staff in the sanatorium all wear felt slippers, something to do with the world of dreams. The bizarre comment that, Time, and that is, is actually masterly and um, seems to me to be a, a profound statement that in the real world where his father has died, 
but it, but in this world they turn back time and that allows them the possibility of a recovery although that's just hinted at it doesn't seem to happen and the bizarre things like are there two fathers the one who's lying sick in bed and the one who's working in his tailor shop and the fact he's a tailor then the telescope that seems kafkaesque this strange creature intruding itself you know it is totally surreal really and i suppose maybe that's what it's meant to be he has command over his language anyway and the dog first of all we see the kennel and then we have this man dog so i'm sure he's saying something quite profound i just want to digress to say that if you think about other art forms poetry to an extent but certainly dance and music you can have a non-narrative piece of art that nevertheless communicates it communicates at a non-rational level so a non-narrative non-rational level so we can have a meaning and a feeling and it can it can generate emotions in us but we actually can't understand why that is at a rational level so i wonder and i suppose that was the aim of the surrealist movement but and i'm not saying that bruno schultz was an avowed surrealist i'm not saying that at all i'm just pointing historical parallels anyway it was weird and uh, Last week, if you remember, I think it was the week before last, actually, I, um, Michael Romeo, one of our listeners, had donated a piece of his music on SoundCloud to use, and I actually put it under my... I used it as the drone noise under my story, um, The Catacombs. There is something deeply unnerving, um, unnerving, unsettling, disquieting about that music, and I can't say why. And in the same way, I think this story is unsettling. And we talked about the bizarre elements, whereas with M.R. James, we have a, a relatively naturalistic story with bizarre elements intruding into it, which works, don't get me wrong. But this is, in the same way that Kafka's, you know, the metamorphosis where the guy turns into a beetle, or Gustav Meyrink's, um The Green Face, they're, they're just the bizarreness of them is, it just kind of knocks you off balance in the real world and pushes you into a a quasi-nightmare world. I'm getting a bit pretentious now, I think. So um, I probably should shut up about it. But um, yeah, like the unsettling drone. I don't know why it unsettles me, but it does. So this is like that. Anyway, Bruno Schultz, a tragic figure. I mean, he, um, he apparently was a painfully shy man. He always wrote, even though his initial uh, interests were of, in the illustrative and decorative arts, uh, he, he went to Lvov or Lviv Polytechnic, now in Ukraine, of course, but pretty local for him, and then uh, went to Vienna, the capital of the Austria-Hungarian Empire, therefore his home city's metropolis, like London is to me. He um, studied architecture there, came back, and bizarrely ended up being the arts and crafts teacher in the school he went to himself. He never really moved outside his hometown after that, he, so he was only away for two or three years. He didn't like teaching much, apparently, but he used to entertain the kids by reading them stories or telling them stories. He got his work recognised, and from the very outset, unlike somebody like Kafka, who wasn't recognised in his life, uh, in his lifetime, Bruno Schultz was. And, and he's never looked back, really. Those who know him have always spoken about him as a literary genius, and he won awards in his lifetime. He translated Kafka, actually into Polish from German because he spoke German fluently. He was Jewish and of course the Jews of Europe suffered a tragic fate after the invasion of the Nazis who took over Poland in 1939. 
the story was that because he was a bright guy, the local Nazi commander um, enslaved him, basically, and had him working in an archive, which wasn't too bad, uh, translating Jesuit works or collating Jesuit works in the library. And also because of his, um, his talent as a painter, he also illustrated his own books, actually, but mostly those illustrations, they're not in the current versions, but because he was an artist himself. But this Nazi guy had him painting murals. You know, the Nazis portrayed themselves, a lot of these guys portrayed themselves as great aesthetes and art, and then they murdered people on a daily basis and then went home and pretended they were in communing with the spiritual, artistic soul of the world and stuff like that. But they had Bruno Schultz painting murals. And his death is immensely tragic. He, because he was the favourite, or at least the, a favoured slave of this Nazi guy, this SS guy, in fact, uh, painting murals for him. The SS guy fell out with a local Gestapo, you know, the German secret police. So the SS were like a, a paramilitary force, weren't they? And the Gestapo were the secret police. So there was a quarrel between these two Nazis. And um, the SS guy killed, summarily killed, the Gestapo guy's favourite Jewish slave. I mean, it's, it's horrific, really. It's, I mean, it's, it's beyond horrific from beginning to end. But, and in return, Bruno Schulz was walking back from buying a loaf of bread, walking home from buying a loaf of bread in 1942. And the Gestapo guy found him and shot him in the street to slight the SS guy with whom he had a quarrel. And this literary genius, the tragedy is more than twofold, but it's at least twofold. A literary genius shot dead in the street and a, just a bloke buying a, a loaf of bread shot dead in the street. Uh, it's just beyond belief. But it isn't beyond belief, sadly. It happens all the time. It's happening right now in different parts of the world. I think of all the ghost story writers or the weird fiction writers that we've talked about on the podcast, Bruno Schultz's story is the, the saddest, really. So there we are. And on that sad note, I hope you enjoyed the story and I hope you haven't brought you down too much. Things that are going on here uh, in this end of the world are all okay. They're, I mean, you know, we've got COVID, we've got a new lockdown facing us and all that kind of stuff. But we we make up, it hasn't been too bad, the weather. The seagulls have all gone, so that's quiet in the mornings. Um, I'm back at work, I'm driving into work and carrying on doing stuff. The move of the podcast over the Substack has happened. So um, I'm since this, if you're listening on Captivate and you're just listening to the free episodes, and um, we've had three exclusive patron episodes through Substack and Patreon, um, so if you if you're happy with just the the free episodes, that's super cool. If you want to support the podcast and want to get more goodies, then come over to Substack. You can even actually have a free subscription, but you don't get the exclusive content anyway. So this is my call to action: come over to Substack, show your support, sign up, get the goodies. Next week, I want to do a Robert Aikman actually. And I'm thinking of doing the waiting room. Now, I'm doing this on a Friday night and I used to, my regime has been all completely changed since we moved to Substack because I used to stack them up three at a time and captivate and then on a Friday I could relax. But now I'm home 
And I'm thinking, oh my God, because I'm going away tomorrow and we're away over the weekend, so I've got to do it tonight. It is a little bit more on edge, but I'm going to do some Robert Aikman. I think the waiting room, I'm pretty, pretty sure I'm going to do the waiting room. Um, I want to do the turn of the screw and I want to do the Christmas Carol. That may take me, doing those long stories may take me all the way up to Christmas. I don't know. Anyway, I hope you're all well. I hope you're all enjoying the stories. I'll speak to you soon. Thank you.